It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. It's a lot of hats. <laughs> you can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. All right. Public service announcement time, a few things. One, Arlington Independent Media, the mother company of WERA 96.7 FM, has been serving the Arlington and DC metro area for over 35 years by providing media training, equipment, facilities, and a volunteer network to build community through media. I worked there for nearly five years, so I've seen firsthand all the great work that they've done in the community and how they help the public be able to get their voices heard. In fact, as serving as the director of the Rosebud Film Festival, they've definitely been trying to help you as filmmakers, for those filmmakers who are listening, uh, to raise your voice. So right now, you can support their efforts through their Fall Fund Drive. Check out arlingtonmedia.org for more information and help a good cause for a great nonprofit. Again, arlingtonmedia.org for more information. Two, I'm currently recording interviews for new content for the fall, but I'm also working on revamping some of how I do this show. When I originally started, it was all about talking about new films and comparing it to a classic and then introducing you to an indie filmmaker. Nearly five years later, and the show is more indie interviews with a sprinkle of new film combo here and there by way of a review or trailer. And I absolutely love championing the indie filmmaker, and I won't stop that. You guys know that. Unfortunately, I just, I miss talking about film like I have in the past. Like, I just want to geek out on was Predator good or not, or talk about how creepy Sierra Burgess is a loser on Netflix really is. Uh, <laughs> so you can expect the layout of the show to change a bit this fall so that I can get back to talking about films that are out in theaters or streaming. I just have to scratch that itch. And uh, so you can expect that in the future. And then finally, another thing that I really want to do is bring added value from a practitioner's perspective in filmmaking. You know, I recently launched my online course PR for the indie filmmaker as a way to help filmmakers with their PR and marketing from the perspective of all those hats that I announced in the beginning, but filmmaker, publicist, festival director, and critic. So if you have not already, please subscribe to the podcast because I'm going to be having segments you won't find on the radio in which I dive deeper into the behind the scenes PR and marketing techniques of the filmmakers who come on the show. Obviously, not everyone who comes on will be able to do this after show segment, uh, but for those that do, I'll make sure that I let you know in the radio show and regular podcast. Uh, but I love diverse stories in cinema from the independent lens, and so I have to make sure that these stories are being told, and whether it's through the course, which you can find at prfortheindiefilmmaker.com or on this show, I want to equip filmmakers who are listening or those who want to dabble with how to get your film seen. Because it really doesn't matter if you make a film and nobody sees it, unless that was your intention, which I would think 99.5% of people, it's not their intention. You gotta share it with the world. So 
Uh, that's just a few of the things that I, I just wanted to mention really quick. Um, some of the changes you can expect for this fall in the programming, and I'll, I'll be sure to mention that again uh, in the future. Okay, this week on the show, I've got more from the DC Black Film Festival as I unload some of the Q&As that took place after our film blocks. Obviously, if you've been listening to Picture Lock, you've already heard from many of the filmmakers that talk in the Q&A afterwards, but I think there's always something about Q&A energy that's always interesting to hear, to kind of hear the process behind the filmmakers. So I got that for you. Plus, your picture lock question of the week from last week is read on the show and heard as we have a call in. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hi, everyone. This is Stephanie Selden Howard. I'm the director of The Weight of Honor, and you're listening to Picture Lock. All right, guys. So you're about to hear the Q&A right after the opening film blocks that we have for DC BFF is going at it alone journeys in self-discovery so I believe we have some of the directors in the building if you guys could come up here uh, we'll have Megan Caulfield come up here we're gonna do a little Q&A with them yeah Megan, are you still here? She might have left. She's coming. She's coming. All right, guys. So uh, until Megan gets here, uh, if you could just uh, go down the row, introduce yourself, your name, and what film you directed. Uh, my name is Joseph Austin II, and my film is One Chance. And I'm Ted Adams III, and I'm the uh, writer, director, producer of Othello Song. And I'm Serge Del Pierre, and I directed Odyssey. All right, guys, so uh, I'll kick it out with a question. Uh, the theme for this block is Going At It Alone, and it's about journeys and self-discovery. So could you just talk a little bit in terms of writing and directing your films uh, as it pertains to that theme? Um, well, for me, I mean, this, this film, um, Pretty much for me, is, is, uh, I sum it up as uh, one chance is a representation of life. You only get one chance at it, one shot. And so, um, you know, every decision you make has a consequence, both good and bad. And so, um, basically, if you have a dream, you know, you, you pursue it. Um, sometimes it might upset people. Sometimes it, you know, could be to your own detriment, but, you know, live your life to the fullest. That's pretty much one chance. So Othello Song was kind of based on my own experiences. I went to school in uh, Hong Kong, and I've worked in pretty much every, every continent except Antarctica. So I've, I've learned through the hard way that you have to step to your homework before you start doing business in other cultures. So um, but at the, when I wrote the film, my son actually was in Japan studying because he wanted to be an actor in Japan, and he was getting his butt kicked, and he might talk about that later. So I was trying to send him a kind of a love note to say, you can do this if you just stick with it, but do your homework. But, it was all, but I didn't want them to think I was picking on him. I was really picking on myself. So I was kind of going through my own story, but also closer to what he was going through at the time when I wrote the story. Uh, when presented with the concept of uh, basically someone taking a ride share to get uh, to Wheaton, essentially, the challenge was how to, I guess, translate it to something bigger, and that's where the concept of Odyssey, or the Odyssey came in, 
and the idea is that you stay, it's just kind of fit into the whole thing where you stay on track and you keep on going no matter which way you're going and then you take, wind up taking this fantastic voyage essentially that is almost unbelievable, but it is plausible in, within this universe and how you just kind of stick to just much like Odysseus did in the classic and that kind of became the basis for the whole thing. So, uh, audience, if you guys go ahead and get your questions ready, because I know I don't, you guys don't want to hear me asking questions. You want to hear from the audience. Um, one of the things about films, and, and specifically your guys' film, because I think I've talked to most of you guys about your film, there's this certain uh, feeling of human connection and connectedness, how we connect, whether it's Odyssey and it's like we're connecting with strangers, but you know, throughout the course, they become like friends or as we just saw, getting schooled in Japanese, <laughs> or, you know, like the father and son uh, with your story. Could you talk a little bit about uh, human connection as it may pertains to your films? Uh, the challenge, once again, was um, our protagonist and who she meets along the way, because it's not about the ride, it's about who you meet and how you get there. And in fact, uh, one interesting part that was added a little later, but in terms of the writing was when she, part of it was to try and expand the whole universe of it as opposed to being just a car. And the idea that she might meet someone who she knew 30 years ago, just for me was very intriguing. It just expanded the whole universe to it and how connected you could happen to perhaps run into someone like that. So. And for me, I mean, the Thelosan is obviously about perception and how you bring your own perspective to a, to, a, um, to, a, to a situation. So obviously being a good American, you want to go in there and fix everything because that's what Americans do. So this young African-American goes to Japan and, and he can help bring up the, the game for everybody. But when we screened this film in Japan in a, in a school and also in an African-American school up in Baltimore, the reaction was a lot different. I mean, the Japanese, they were, first, first of all, a lot of people think that the, the teacher was way too harsh. But then the Japanese students said, no, that's exactly right. It was spot on. So, but the idea of, of I versus we, that's a, that's a very real concept. The idea of, um, when we've talked about this, people say, oh, this you know, young African-American is being picked on for playing, you know. But nobody ever talks about the Japanese students are all playing a role that they're not historically been, you know, they've been written to play. So again, they're bringing some of their perspective to the table. He's bringing his perspective to the table. The idea that uh, we can't play anything other than pimps and, and, and drug dealers, that's, that's, a, that's an issue. When I went to school in Japan, in, in Hong Kong, a lot of the students would come up to me and say, hey, Ted, you know, you're the first black person I've ever spoken to. And you seem pretty, pretty safe. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna rob you. But again, that's, that's from their perspective, because on, on the commercials, that's all they saw. And a, they, I remember buying toothpaste. There was literally a toothpaste called Darky Toothpaste with a guy in blackface on it. Number one selling toothpaste in Japan and Taiwan. I mean, in Hong Kong and Taiwan at the time. So those kind of things are the barriers we were trying to break down with this story. Um, in terms of connection for my film, um, uh, with the father and son relationship, like my dad is my, my hero, you know, so I want to, you know, grow up and be just like him. So, like, the, the film isn't like a, an exact mirror of our relationship, but at the same time, it's also, you see how um, a father wants to protect his son from himself and avoid making um, you know, certain mistakes that, be, could, that could be to his detriment. Um, but also, you know, I guess it comes a point in time where, you know, 
you kind of you know have to let you know the father has to release you know the hand of the son and kind of let him let him do his own thing and find his own way and live his own life and allow him to make his own decisions. Um, so um, yeah, that's pretty much um, just in terms of connection um, with that representative in my family. Awesome, thanks guys. All right, any questions from the audience? So I enjoyed all three films. Um, just curious though, uh, I said, uh, curious uh, about adversity and what, in your view, all three of you, uh, when adversity comes into life, what do your films say about the way people explore themselves under those circumstances? Um, for mine is, um, I guess Chance had to hold up a mirror to himself and you know, ask himself, um, in essence, is his dream worth dying for? And I know like that's kind of a drastic for him to examine himself and say yes, but I guess um, if you're so passionate about something and you're willing to put everything that you have into it, and in this case, risk your life, then um, you know sometimes you know you have to take that leap of faith and go for it. Um, so in terms of adversity, it's going to come. You know, any which way, you know. Um, so it's like you kind of just have to roll with the punches of life. And um, one chance is like a microcosm of life. Um, when you least expect it, you hit a roadblock. When you think you're set up to, you know, he thought he was set up for a championship belt, and then, you know, he has his health scare. And then he has to consider, you know, his um, fiance is pregnant. Also, his mom died from that same um, disease and then also his relationship with his dad so it's not like he just has to consider himself he has to consider his loved ones um, as well so it's a tough decision that he had to make for the son it was more about uh, he, he comes in he wants to help this young lady because again that's what we do but he had to humble himself and the humility that you go through when you find adversity and then you're able to roll with that not to be a cliche I'm rolling with the punches but getting up and, and, um, and moving forward that's why he was able to, to ultimately conquer in the end. Uh, the adversity in the Odyssey really is her getting home and the obstacles that essentially the universe is sending up in her way and her acceptance that sometimes it just takes a little longer to get there, especially in the sea of technology that is keeping her from getting there. Questions? Really, really just more a, a comment um, from Odyssey and then for the other two films as well. I did notice there was this, this one point in the film where there was like this, uh, since the theme is self-discovery, but this awareness of like, this is who I am, you know? Like in the, in the Odyssey, like she's in the car and the girl with the, I don't know what that stuff they had on their fingers was. <laughs> what the? With the finger lights. lights. Finger lights. She was like, ooh, I kind of really want to go into this club. That's more me than staying in this car. But she was kind of, you know, she explored the thought of it. Uh, and then for Othello's son, you know, he kind of comes to this awareness once the teacher kind of goes on that, you know, soliloquy of, you know, basically identity and being a part of the group. And then, you know, even even with, uh, um, um, sorry, this is gay for me. The, Chance, one chance. Uh, he comes to that identity like, I have to be who I am when he's talking to uh, his girlfriend at the time. He's like, even if I die, like, I gotta give it a chance. So I really appreciate the, the aha moment in that. That's my statement, so we got five minutes. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. All right, we probably got time for maybe two questions. In the back, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you.
Um, for Adela's son, I was just wondering what was your casting process like for Jason? Was it like purposeful to cast a like ethnically kind of ambiguous black character, or were you going for, or were you going for someone that could like really speak Japanese well? Because I was just wondering, because when I first saw him, I thought maybe he was not black. <laughs> okay, that's a trick question. Do I know? I, can, I can't wait for the answer. <laughs> this is so, the son is played by that African Filipino guy in the back row there. That's my. So my wife, my wife's Filipino, so he's a Blackapino. So he does, yeah, he does have that kind of strange thing going on. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, he was actually studying Japanese, and when we were filming, we were rehearsing for the story. That whole, most of the whole half of the movie after he starts speaking Japanese was going to be all in Japanese, okay? And when we were rehearsing it, he was trying his God's honest truth best to keep up. So I said, look, Theo, what I want you to do is when you, when you do your part, when you're going to this little part here, just go as far as you can. And then Yuki Matsusaki, the, the instructor, was, was coaching him. And, he's, and during the rehearsals, he got better and better and better speaking Japanese. But when he was breaking down there, that was real. I just said, just go as far as you can, and we'll <laughs> you're gonna not make it through it. But, and then you can just stop them. So yeah, but thank you for, I mean, and he wasn't a voice over, that was his voice, and he did the best he could. But uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a mud, he's worse on mud, but yeah. That's your black kid back there. Own it, brother, that's what this is all about, own that. All right, one more question. It's probably gonna be brief because we got a one minute. Hi, okay, so first of all, all three movies were amazing. Second of all, I don't wanna take an Uber anymore. <laughs> like ever. Third of all, what made you, for Odyssey, what made you come up with those characters in particular? Because I know me, as soon as the tourist people started doing their tourist thing, it would have been done. But, yeah. Uh, okay, I'll answer it the way it kind of came to me. Is basically I knew I wanted the tourists to kind of set the the template for everything, and then what we tried to use is the Odyssey's an analog for the characters. So, for example, the guy on the phone is basically his analog with Cyclops, and then for the blind guy was Tiresias the poet. Just lightly, but then of course, for the rave it was the sirens, and the, just those analogs helped to form who those became. Um, let's risk it. Anybody got a quick question? So, quick, quick question regarding the Odyssey. Were you inspired by other film versions of the story, like A Brother Where Art Thou, or that Armand Asante version of the same story? Actually, no. We just researched Odyssey, and I have to tell you, the one influence last summer was Twin Peaks for me. All right, I think there was another one right over here. Hello. Um, all of the films were definitely excellent, but I wanted to know, what are you all, all working on next? I'm currently editing a film that I've had in the can for a few years, and then just exploring other projects, too work on his short films. I'm working on a couple of feature films and then a couple of feature films and I'm also working on a short we're going to shoot in September called The Charles Effect about a young man who um, is uh, dealing with how to 
use his skills. He, he's, got, he's on the autistic, autistic spectrum, and he's trying to help cure cancer. Um, I'm shooting my first feature film right now in New York, so. I got to New York and get continue shooting. All right, uh, Tina, we're gonna have to stab it. All right, let's give them another round of applause. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. Picture Lock's question of the week last week is, who is your favorite director of all time? On Instagram, at Epic Film Guy said, such a hard question, at John Glimpsed, emojied fire, at May Abdulbaki said, just one, starts thinking. At Above the J Frey said, Hitchcock all the way. I gotta give credit to Jason Fraley for a film critic to actually name one director. Uh, props to you. I don't know if I could do it. I, I honestly don't know. But that being said, I might be siding with Jason on that. <laughs> all right, retweets and likes on Twitter, but no feedback. I totally botched it on Facebook and forgot to post somehow. I'm not sure I actually need to look into that because it should have. Uh, but no matter what, we've got a call in this week from DMV listener Chad X Ali. What's going on, Picture Lock listeners? My name is Chad X Ali, filmmaker from the DMV by way of Tyler, Texas. And answering the question of who's my favorite director, uh, by far is Ryan Coogler. Just being able to see this brother's uh, growth and being able to do a little research and, and see where he comes from. Uh, myself being an athlete and him being a former athlete and, and kind of having a total different career path ahead of you. You kind of dive in just from your heart. You know, you dive in for the passion of the, the projects and to see the growth inside of his career and just the things that he's able to do for our community and, and do for young uh, people of color who are trying to strive to do something different in their lives. 
um, is very inspiring. So being able to translate that into the screen and take all that that, that encompasses and, 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 and make films that people can um, really be inspired by is really why I love Ryan Coogler. So my name is Chad X Ali, Picture Lock Show. Make sure y'all tune in and listen. Thanks. Appreciate the call in, Chad. Certainly. I, I definitely think that Ryan Coogler is right up there in my top 10 right now in terms of directors. My The way that I always establish like who is a director that I just think should get high acclaim is they have to have at least three films out, um, all just doing well. And I think Coogler, he has those three films. Um, and man, that dude is incredible when he gets behind the camera, not to mention the Michael B. Jordan combination, but, uh, definitely understand how Chad can feel that way. Appreciate you again, Chad, and everybody that, uh, weighed in on last week's question. This week's question, which film are you looking forward to the most this fall and why? So leave me a message 60 seconds or less on your most anticipated fall film and why. And I'm going to do my best to play it on the show. 202-350-1351. You can always let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com. And I'll read your answer next episode. All right, guys, so now we're going to get into the history and hidden figures Q&A right after that film block ended. Awesome. So I appreciate you guys sticking around. Um, if you guys could just say your name and what film uh, you directed. Uh, Derek Wharton, uh, producer, directed Deeds, Not Words. Louis T. Powell, Padlock Men, writer, director, producer, and composer, actor. Padlock Men. All right, guys, so I think first off, you know, this block is uh, history and hidden figures. I think it's extremely important. So again, we just want to thank you guys for making these films. Um, if you could, why was it important for you to make your film? For me, um, well, first of all, I just like talking to older people because they have so much knowledge that they can pass on to us. Um, so I think it's very important family members that you have that are getting older, you never know when they're not gonna be there anymore and they have so much to tell if you just sit down and listen. Um, but beyond that, um, just being able to experience and, and learn about this man, uh, Robert Madison, and just the force of nature that he is. I mean, you just put the camera in front of him and you just learn so much. And his life, the man's still alive, he's 95 years old now, he was 90 when we started, his life is really a historical lesson in so many ways. I mean, he talks about um, the GI Bill. You know, the GI Bill was a situation where it's one of the greatest opportunities to um, get wealth to the middle class, and that was something that a lot of African Americans were denied. So he speaks to that, and that speaks to the history of, of when this home ownership um, really advanced, but not in the black community, even though these guys like Robert Madison had gone and fought to the war and earned their right to the benefits of the GI Bill, which also guaranteed him the right to get in the Case Western Reserve, but yet he was almost denied. But if you saw the film, you can see he's not the kind of guy you can say no to. He doesn't take no very lightly. Um, things like restricted covenants, again, that restricted, it was literally written in the deeds that you could not sell your house to a person if they were of Jewish descent or if they were African-American or, or any other things like that. So this is a man who's still alive. We experienced all these things. I think he's had a great story to tell about just his life and 
how you can be successful coming from anywhere, and if you if you if you um, aggressive and persistent, that you can accomplish anything. First off, thank you guys for coming out. You know, on this early Friday morning, <laughs> it's good to see you celebrating cinema. Uh, Padlock Men. Padlock Men was created because I wanted to create a piece that was coming from strength. I'm, you know, I'm. Uh, a, a true advocate of the hero's journey. And a lot of times when I've seen films coming from our perspective and our narrative, I've never seen films that actually come from a place of real strength and power in so many different directions. And when I look at the characters, you know, that were within my film, I look at, you know, Martin Luther King, JFK, and Malcolm X, and I said, you know, what would be their alter egos if they really could do what they really wanted to do? And if we could tell a different perspective of history, and say if these guys existed during that point in time, how much different would the narrative be right now for us if the padlock men had existed? And I'm pretty sure there has been some padlock men that did exist, but they never get to quite shine. And their due diligence and justice, you know, most of us never see in these history books that we read and we watch in school and the films that we see now. So padlock men, like I said, was more of a passion project for me to create something of, like I said, strength, poise, intelligence, but at the same time, we could bring the fire if we need to. Um, so, audience, if you guys have questions, I'm about to come out there to you. Last question from me. One of the things that I think in seeing these films is that you guys have a tremendous uh, respect, whether that be for history, as you're just kind of talking about, or telling our story. Um, and so, for me personally, like, you guys are indie filmmakers and you know you take the time to create these films. Um, personally, why do you think it's like important to get these stories out? For me, um, I had always felt like, you know, when Black History Month comes around and you hear and you, you know, hear these stories, often it's about uh, civil rights leaders, it's about athletes, it's about performers, but we don't hear about the guys at the grassroots level that we're making it happen in their day-to-day -day jobs, but still being very impactful. I mean, this man helped elect the first uh, black mayor of a major African-American city. I mean, he was there. Um, he actually met Martin Luther King. Um, so he touched history, um, but he also enhanced the capabilities of people in his company and the African-American experience in Ohio, starting the first African-American architectural firm there. So he was doing that work. Those laws that were put in place with the, by the Civil Rights Movement, he was actually putting the work, and I don't think we hear enough about those people, the everyday warriors. Kind of to piggyback, um, what he said was, yeah, we don't hear about those stories. The same way we don't hear about the stories of the men who existed, like padlock men who got down in the trenches and they actually did the dirty work, you know? And I feel like they've existed all through times. I mean, they don't teach this, the story of the Haitian Revolution in the history books. I mean, these guys were warriors. And I feel like sometimes in film, from our perspective and my vantage point, we've always come across a little bit docile. And I didn't want to come from a place of docile. I wanted to show from a perspective of being a black man, raised in a black city, raised from a black mother and father, you know, my mother was out there doing the 60s. My father was out there doing the 60s. And I wanted to tell a perspective of the guys in the barbershop that I grew up in, the stories that I heard from the guys who were 90, 80, 70, 60, what they shared with me. You know, and these guys didn't talk from a place of, uh, I want to say, disillusion from, you know, an inward space and having their shoulders crowded. They stood with their chest out. 
And it's like, if it came down to speak with you on one level where it came from, you know, I can speak to you from an educated space, but then if you want to take it somewhere else, we can talk with these two. There's a duality between our people that most people don't understand and see, that I see nowadays, and I feel like it's not represented to the truest, fullest potential that it can be. And it just shows how intelligent we are, because we are warriors at the grassroots, but we're warriors in the heart, the mind, and the spirit. And that was the reason why I came up with Bad Lockman. So uh, this question is for uh, Lewis T. Powell. Uh, with your movie Padlock, man, it looks like it can transition almost into a series or something of that aspect. Is that something you, you're trying to do with this film? That's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, what's your name? My name is Craig Shields. Thank you, Craig. Um, yeah, it actually started off as a novel. You know, I wrote it as a novel, it was about 2014, and uh, I woke up from it out of a dream. I saw vividly pictures of Martin Luther King, uh, John F. Kennedy, and Malcolm X, and it just started flowing. And like I said, novels, you can take so much more care with your characters. You can take so much more depth in the stories. So when I looked at it, I said, oh, man, I'm such a visual artist, I'm a filmmaker. So when I looked at it, I said, you know, this would make a great limited series. It would make a series to the point where these characters to be developed over like say eight to 10 episodes. So I started going on that journey. About 342 note, note cards later, I was at the space where I really wanted to shoot something. I came around 2015 and I said, let me shoot a slice with the beginning, middle and end. We can bring people into the story and bring you out of it. And ask, you can ask the question, where did they go? And then it was something I wanted to include inside of a pitch deck that I had which was probably one of the first of its kind, which would be a visual pitch deck that you could read, seamlessly go in from the written pitch deck into a visual and out of it, and still see where the story goes and how it finishes. So yes, limited series. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, both films were nice. Uh, the question I have is, uh, with today's racial climate at, uh, resurging, do you uh, find that you make him bring it to a modern day time, uh, especially with what's going on in today's news? <coughs> Can you repeat the question? I, get the um, I, I noticed that most of the films now are based out of the 60s, which most of the civil rights uh, things took place. Yeah. Well, we're having a resurgence of uh, the racial environment from back in the 60s, as far as I can see. Right. Entities, are you able to um, both? The, are you able to uh, come up with a new concept on today's content, or are you going to continue to stay in the narrative of in the '60s when the first acts really took place? Well, I think there's a lot we can learn from what happened in the '60s. I think uh, a lot of what you see now, we're going back to that environment, and what you see is history repeating itself, and history repeats itself when we don't know our history. So that's why I think it's important to just go back and learn about things that happened in the past, learn about people that experienced these things in the past, what their strategies have been. I mean, you couldn't think of an environment today, though, I think that was more difficult to navigate through than the, the, the environment that Mr. Madison had to achieve his success as an architect. But I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from history uh, with, and, uh, you know, with, in the current political environment we have today, there's a lot of this 
60s and 70s, 50s history repeating itself. So it's, it's not really any different. It's a different year, but it's the same scenarios. I mean, he couldn't have said it better. Uh, you know, how do you know where you're going in the future if you don't really understand truly what your past is? And we've been brainwashed on what our past actually is. So it's up to us and the people and the individuals in this room to show what our real narrative is. And the only way we can do that is through visual media, medium, speaking, talking. I mean, I grew up in a barbershop. It's the information superhighway. Information was always spreading to me that way. You know, and it was the truth that I was actually hearing that I wasn't seeing in the school books and in school. So, you know, I mean, when I look at the crossover where today is and, and where we were in the 60s, deep state government has always existed. I mean, you see it, you see how government is acting in the shadows and now they're acting more out in the forefront. It doesn't change, it's just a geographical place and the people and the faces, but it's all the same. All right, likely our last question before we gotta wrap up. Hey, my question is for Lou. Uh, you know, first of all, fantastic film, sir, excellent, loved it. Thank uh, you, brother, I appreciate it. Uh, I have a technical question for you. As a director and you were the actor, uh, how was it, can you tell me a little bit about your process in terms of like watching yourself and how did, how did you accomplish that? Well, first thing, I, I think everything is about pre-production and planning. Like, I'm really big on planning. I feel like you put all your fires out at the beginning, so the only thing you're doing at the end of it is just, you know, throwing a little bit of water on something. Um, and you're no greater than the team around you. You know, you gotta surround yourself with great people that you trust that can come to the table and do their job correctly, and then you may be able to, you know, come in and do a little bit of finesse here, a little bit of finesse there, but you're trusting the process and the people that you've included in your production. So for me as a director, it was like, you know, I did as much pre-planning as I could, and I got out, I went out and got like my brother, Markel Spivey over there, he's an associate producer. Uh, Tommy Rogat, he was one of the graphic designers, and I trusted that their abilities could come to the table and see the vision as I explained it. So by the time I got to production on set, it was just a thing where, you know what, we set the ball in motion, we did all the pre-planning, we went over how exactly things were supposed to line up the days of production, days in and days out, and when I got a chance to jump in front of the camera, I knew that the people that were behind and dialing in all the settings, everything would be perfectly where I needed it to be. That's pretty much it. Awesome. You want to answer that same question? You might have like a minute left. No, I would just, yeah, I mean, the more work you do up front, uh, it's going to pay 10 times the dividend on the back end. So any, if there's any new aspiring filmmakers out there, it's all about the planning. Spend months planning, getting your documentation straight, getting your day straight, so then when the disasters happen, and they're going to happen, you're ready for it, you have the documentation, you have the plan Bs and plan Cs, and you have a pathway to keep being successful, so, yeah. Can we give these brothers another round of applause? Thank you, Kevin, and the DC Black Film Festival for uh, being such a gracious host for Padlock, man, and thank you all again for coming out. Yeah, let me give major kudos to Kevin for this festival. Um, film, the opening night films were awesome. The films today were awesome, so I'm having a great time. So, come out and see you. Great, awesome. Thank you so much, guys. All right, we're going to move into the love and heartbreak Q&A right after that film block. Um, and guys, if you could just go down the line, say your name and the film that you direct. 
Uh, my name is Chad Eric Smith, and I wrote and directed Rumination. My name is Praheen, and I directed Stuck. My name is Chad Quinn. Two black Chads in one place. Uh, I wrote and directed uh, For the Love of Music. Hi, my name is Bruce Gorman, Jr. I wrote, uh, produced and directed Thurman Comes Home, which was the first film. Richard Bird, I'm the lead actor in Thurman, Thurman Comes Home. All right, guys, so uh, that theme was love and heartbreak. If you could just talk a little bit about what love and sometimes the heartbreak that comes with it. I know not everything was about heartbreak. Some things were comedies, funny, but what that means to your film specifically. Okay, I'll start us off. Uh, for, for the love of music, Ty Powell had to step out, um, but that's based off her real life story. Um, unfortunately, something that uh, many, I'm a dean at a high school, that many of my students can relate to. Um, so when I think of love and heartbreak, I think about distrusting someone. Uh, and that's what it was in that story. There were a lot of uh, messed up relationships in her life. So it took her a long time to feel like she could connect with a human. So that's why she connected so much to music. Um, so yeah. Okay, so love and heartbreak for Stuck. I wanted to take a look at how millennials interact with each other, how you could have sex, have the most intimate act with somebody and not even know them. And so to, to make a love story where it's like they have the most intimate act and then the rest of the movie they're spending their time to get to know each other and kind of playing on the audience like hope and desire that maybe they'll stay together. But like most relationships, depending on the timing, uh, where you are in your life, you can meet the greatest person on earth, but if it's not the right time, it's just not gonna work out. So that's why we kind of stuck with that ending where it's like, all right, this guy was really into her, he was chasing her, but at the end, it just didn't work out for him. And so that was a little love, happiness, and some heartache and some comedy in there. Um, rumination was uh, inspired by my own personal experience with heartbreak um, after a breakup a few years ago. And so um, at its core, are the universal themes of, of grief, um, of regret, and I fused it with the topics of um, mental health, self-medication, and time travel, which is my favorite subgenre of science fiction. So um, it was just basically a cathartic way to help me deal with my own shit. Our film Thurman Comes Home, the, the heartbreak in that one is uh, starts at the beginning for Thurman. He's, um, he's the product of a, a broken home and, a, and a, a mother, an alcoholic mother, who basically throws her bottles at him. And uh, his heartbreak is, I guess, he, he doesn't value himself. He didn't learn to love himself from his mother. And so uh, when Richard, who was playing the part, uh, we were discussing the role, uh, we said, you know, the 25 guilty pleas, because he spends his whole life on the street or in prison, uh, he's pleading guilty to himself being worthless. And that's... Thurman's story. Um, on the flip side, the love part of it is the other character played, uh, Mr. Josephson, played by Wesley Spencer, uh, couldn't join us today, but uh, he showed an act of kindness to Thurman, and so when the time came for Thurman to pass on to the other side, if he could have chosen anybody to have brought him to heaven, uh, he would have chosen the one guy who showed him some kindness in his childhood, and that was this uh, mentor character that comes back uh, and saves him. All right, so uh, guys in the audience, if you got any questions, go ahead, get them ready and raise your hand. Last question for you guys. Um, just in terms of, I guess maybe Richard, for you, the challenge of getting into that character, and then for the directors, what was like one of the challenges you faced in making your film? Um, 
I got a little lucky um, with getting into the character. Bruce really helped me get into the character. We spent a lot of time rehearsing the script. Even though it was short, we, we met in the office and we went over it several times. But I got lucky because on the way to the office, I met a, um, a homeless woman. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I just decided to talk to her and she was really nice and I was really upfront with what I was trying to, to accomplish. I wanted to, to make this as real as possible. Growing up in New York City, I used to always walk past homeless people and that was the one thing that I was always afraid of, um, wondering how these people got on the streets. But um, after you know learning the story that um, anyone could be on the streets and this particular young lady, I uh, told her what I was working on and she was just so kind to share her story. And um, she was right at home on the streets and it was pretty much like Thurman, she had a boyfriend. Um, they weren't really looking to get off the streets. They were really comfortable. So, but that's not where obviously she wanted to be because at the end of the day, they didn't have anybody to, to help. So um, this was my chance to, to tell their story and others across the city. Um, it's a big epidemic across the country. And um, yeah, so this one is just kind of humanizing the person um, that's homeless. Challenge that you face, if you want to, you can pass it on. Yeah, um, just quick challenges. I, I don't. That film had a lot of blessings to it, more than challenges. And, and uh, so I'd say the only uh, the only challenge was it would have been it would have been great to have even more prep. But I'm very proud of what uh, Richard Wesley accomplished in the game uh, in 18 degree weather in the snow. Right. Um, I think every director knows we have a lot of challenges. Uh, always a budget challenge. But I think the biggest challenge for me. Um, was to preserve the integrity uh, of this woman's story, because like, it was weird, you know what I mean? Like, this is the first story that I told that I didn't just write out of my head, this is her life. So like, it was like a heavy weight to make sure that I honored that. Um, so yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge. Uh, challenge for Stuck, I would say, probably time and money. Wish we could have had more resources, more time to, to have more cooler stuff. But um, outside of that, Wanted to be able to make something that was sexy and fun, but not necessarily uh, like too sexual and something that was like over the top where people couldn't enjoy it. And also uh, wanted to maintain the sexy, but not exploiting the main uh, woman character. So we tried to exploit the, the male character. So, you know, just kind of playing on those role reversals. So that was something trying to uh, make that happen without offending people. Um. You know, rumination means to obsessively and compulsively think about something over and over. And I was trying to move forward from uh, the breakup. Um, so the irony of it, and I guess the challenge for me was the fact that I was still ruminating, in a sense, on the past breakup through the art of it, and I guess now through the showing of it, in a way. Um, but as far as the production, uh, it, wasn't, it was pretty smooth. Um, and my lead actor, Kelvin Drummond, can you stand here real quick? Yeah, that's uh, after. I know uh, your family had a lot of discussions about just uh, you know what it's like to be in that type of grief, to be really like just really deeply sad. And so I know that was uh, a challenge for him, and I think he uh, really rose to the occasion. We talked about uh, seven pounds a lot of uh, Will Smith, who's his favorite his favorite um, actor. So, but uh, overall, it was pretty smooth. Uh, congratulations on great work, guys. Really enjoyed the films today. Um, 
I have a question. Uh, American audiences typically expect the happy ending. So I just wanted to ask you, how much of a challenge was it for you and your writers to buck that trend and go for the non-happy endings? Um, you know, because Rumination was kind of inspired by my own um, personal experience, as I was writing it, I, I wanted it to have a, a truly unambiguous happy ending. But then I realized that it wouldn't be satisfying if the character could succeed when I couldn't in real life. You know, so uh, instead I thought it would be kind of um, more interesting to kind of leave it up to the imagination of the audience of whether or not, you know, is, is he, you know, hallucinating, did it work? Um, and I thought it made for a more compelling uh, ending. Uh, I think that time and place for happy endings. Like, it depends on the story, depends on like what you're trying to get across. And like reality is everything doesn't always end with a perfect bow tie. So sometimes you just want to kind of punch the audience in the face with something that's real. And the non-happy endings will definitely leave them with that at the very end. So. Yeah, um, that's typically where I go. Uh, with For the Love of Music was a little different because um, this is based off her book that she wrote. Um, the goal is to make the full feature, right? But because it's a short, and because of the, the topic and the things that were going in was so heavy, um, one of the objectives for me is to leave people knowing that they can persevere through anything. So it's kind of hard because like, I'm a big transition person and I don't want to like, oh, you get a new job at the end of all of this drama. But I wanted people to be able to take something from the short and leave inspired that they can get through whatever they're going through. With, uh, I guess with Thurman Come Homes, technically we did have a happy ending. He, he goes to heaven in the end, but the, that's not the last shot you see in the film. The last shot is, is kind of almost like a dream sequence flashback. I like flashbacks to childhood because I think it adds depth to the character. It adds depth to what you know, people are going through as an adult. And so the last shot you see in our film is you kind of see the character Thurman. He's got a long road ahead of him, and it's not going to be pleasant. Um, but at the end of it, at the end of it where he's walking, he's going to get to where we saw in the film, Mr. Rob, Mr. Joseph. More questions? I wanted to ask about um, directing really difficult roles, uh, especially in For Love of Music. Um, how did you, uh, was it difficult to direct uh, those type of, uh, like the, the rape scenes and stuff like that to get your characters in the right place? Because you, you kind of have to step in the, in the feet of the characters, it's just really hard to imagine how you could do that, so talk about that. Yeah, um, I think first you gotta have a conversation with yourself, right? Like, it wasn't a sex scene, it was an assault scene, right? So I had to make that distinction first of all in my head. Um, and then it takes a lot of trust. Um, so, me and my actor, Andrea, who did a phenomenal role, um, job with that role, we talked about what she's comfortable with, what I wanted, made sure that we find that balance and then it was easier for me to block the scenes uh, with the young men with her, right? I think the other challenge though was because I knew where the story was going, there was a point where we were filming um, and the, young, the little young lady, Alexis Diamond, there were things that were gonna happen that I didn't really happen to her, but it's like it was so hard because we were so into the movie. So there was a lot of times on set where we literally would just pause. You know, because this is work, but this is still humanity. So there's times where it's like, all right, we just gotta, don't worry about the budget right now. People need to breathe, they need space. As long as you keep that line of communication open, um, that's how you work through those type of things. 
Uh, I, I do want to say that um, with, you know, I think I've read somewhere that 80% um, of directing is casting or something like that. You know, if you have really good actors, um, then, you know, it makes it a lot easier to direct them, right? And um, in particular, I wanted to, um, you know, the dialogue was really dialogue heavy when um, Elliot's character meets with um, the character played by Danny Gavigan. And uh, we did rehearsals and he actually drew his inspiration for that particular performance from his niece um, who's on the autism spectrum. And so, um, you know, I love watching his particular performance because when I look at the screenplay, he does it word for word, verbatim. And uh, I think that's a testament to his theater um, background. So I think a lot of um, actors who, whose foundation is on the stage are really good with, um, you know, you know, and you know, really getting those lines down um, as intended. So, um, yeah, I was going to say that. I think we got time for one more question. So, thank you. I enjoyed the films, although I didn't get the chance to see a third one. I think I walked in after that started. But I'm curious, uh, shifting to the business side, if you all, uh, how do you all go about convincing an investor? that uh, there's money to be made from the films that you uh, develop? I mean, that's the hard part. I'm still trying to figure out myself. Um, I know right now, I've, I tell people all the time that I write what I can afford. And a lot of it comes out of my own pocket right now. But I think the film festival circuit, what makes um, you know amazing festivals like DC Black Film Festival is that it allows you to get the credibility uh, through the laurels, through awards that you may uh, win, through the networking, that shows that people actually like it, you know. And so that's a good way to sell it. Say, you know, it did well at the festival, so I'm sure uh, it'll do well, um, you know, either at a theater or a computer or TV near you. Okay, so for that, uh, I think it depends on what you're trying to get out of your film. A lot of them, if you have shorts, it's not a big opportunity to make money out of it. Um, but there are new places and platforms that you can put the short content on. But it's like, all right, you're trying to either make some money or you're looking for exposure. So I think majority of us are here for the exposure. Uh, I would imagine majority of us would make films for free. And so it's like, this is what we're doing. We're putting in our dues, making content so that when the opportunity presents itself and someone says, hey, who's this filmmaker? Oh, he has a track record. He has this, this, and this. He's ready for the big lead. Let's bring him on and make a bigger film. We want to be ready for those moments. Um, and so the exposure is the priceless thing, making connections with the audience, meeting the festival programmers, making connections with other filmmakers. You never know, these people could end up like producing, directing on each other's films. And so that's what, um, that's the benefit from getting the films out into the world, not necessarily a monetary gain. Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that real quick is just from the branding side of things, a lot of times investors are more so looking at you besides just that quality of work they see up there. Like, um, I, I am my main investor. Uh, but one time I did have an investor. They liked the project, but they just liked my style. So they wanted to know what else I had. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how like we're taking things in, um, just societal-wise. Like you think about some music, a lot of times people are like the character of that musician and the music is secondary. You know what I mean? So like we're in a whole different market now where you're branding yourself, your work, everything.
I, I agree with everything. Music, that, uh, everything that was said. And then, Sorry, uh, music might be about to start, but go ahead, finish, finish it. Uh, just real, very briefly, in addition to what they said, you know, making a movie is pretty cool. You can invest in a lot of things, but it's nothing like uh, being part of a film, seeing the making of a film, having your name attached to it. Um, I think that's what a lot of also what will get the money involved because you, you know you can buy a stock and you can say, well, it went up and I made money. But that's not really a great story. The fact that you made a movie, I think it's a terrific story and a lot of people just want to hear that just by, because it's a movie. All right, let's give these guys another round of applause. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing from the Q&A's post-DC BFF film blocks. I still have a bunch of those left, so I may put those out next week, but I know I'll have some new content. So be sure to catch up on back episodes of the podcast and subscribe in iTunes. Keyword subscribe. iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast, so you can catch those unlocked versions of the show. You don't want to miss anything. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say Alexa play picture lock podcast and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five star review of the show as well. You can find picture lock on most social media. All social media is at picture lock show. Be sure to follow me on the Stardust app for my quick movie TV and trailer reviews. Just look up at picture lock show and I'll be there. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash picture lock show and subscribe. Oh, I finally got some time to do some uh, new reviews. So you want to check those out. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Just go to the website, picturelockshow.com. You'll see where it says, come on the show, fill that out. And I'd love to have you. This week's question of the week, what's your most anticipated film of this fall and why? Drop me a voicemail at 202-350-1351, 202-350-1351, or send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com or on any of Picturelock's social media pages, and I'll talk about it on the air next week. I'm crossing my fingers that we can bring back Robert Winship for the Fall Back Spring Forward segment this season. Robert, if you're in the office listening, pressure coming down on you, <laughs> pressure. I just had to get that in. I, I'm putting all the pressure on you, bro. Um, I know I'm looking forward to doing this Fall Back Spring Forward segment. In fact, we didn't do it last spring because I, if, I ain't, if I ain't got Robert, I ain't got nobody, but that's about to change. Sorry. So come on back, Robert. <laughs> all right. All music is done by Mike S. The Producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S. The Producer, numeral one, numeral three, and hit him up for your music production needs. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.